It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Monitor Monday. I'm Dennis Jones, substituting for Chuck Buck, who's on assignment. Our top story this morning is about the electronic lifeline for rural healthcare telemedicine. It's a rapidly growing sector of healthcare in the United States and has recently gone through a significant expansion. Returning to Monitor Mondays to provide an update on his October 2017 report on the Chronic Act and MedPAC's report on telemedicine will be attorney Dale C. Vandemark, a partner at McDermott, Will, and Emory in Washington, D.C., And also on the rundown, Monitor Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer will report on the latest developments involving Medicare Advantage organizations. Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley has all the latest topics and the Monitor Monday Listener Survey. Healthcare Attorney Dave Glazer has another example of risky business. And Monitor Monday National Correspondent Tim Powell has an update on the controversial 340B drug program. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Today, I have a great mystery to present to the Monitor Monday listeners. Last week, the Office of the Inspector General announced a $1.88 million False Claims Act settlement with Genesis Medical Center in Iowa. In the settlement, the OIG noted that Genesis retained Medicare overpayments for inpatient admissions that should have been billed at a lower rate as outpatient or observation services for the period between 2013 and 2016. Now, False Claims Act settlements are not uncommon. In fact, on Friday, the OIG announced a $3.2 million settlement with an orthopedic and anesthesia group that supposedly conspired to perform surgeries at a surgery center instead of the physician's office, and an $11.5 million settlement with a radiation therapy company which allegedly paid illegal inducements to drive volume. But what makes the Genesis case stand out is that unlike the other two false claims cases, this case was not initiated by a whistleblower. In fact, there's no indication at all what initiated this OIG investigation and a spokesperson for the U.S. Attorney's Office specifically noted that it was not a whistleblower that initiated the case. So why did the OIG go after Genesis Medical Center? Well, my next stop, of course, was Google, where I noted another settlement for Genesis for over $53 million, but quickly realized this was a different Genesis. That Genesis was a company that owns and operates nursing facilities, And it is clear that they must have been suspected of doing a lot of non-compliant things to have to pay $53 million. Then I noted that Genesis Medical Center was, in fact, audited by the OIG in 2014 for services provided in 2010 and 2011. That was a routine audit. But now I was on to something. Genesis must have done really poorly on this audit, so naturally the OIG opened a False Claims Act. Well, lo and behold, Genesis did have inpatient admissions audited. In fact, the OIG must have been really concerned because they audited 283 charts. And how many were determined to be billed improperly? Two. Yes, two out of 283 were improper. 
In fact, Genesis did well on almost every area audited, and they even admitted guilt with every error the OIG found. So it remains a great mystery as to why Genesis Medical Center was investigated when there was no whistleblower and a recent audit was much, much better than most hospitals. And it worries me. Bet Hospital had an error rate that was well under 1%. And when I look back at other OIG audits of inpatient admissions, I find much larger hospitals with inpatient admission error rates from 25 to almost 50%. Until we figure this out, every hospital better ensure their processes that determine patient status are compliant and followed to the letter because we know, have no idea how the OIG is picking their targets and who is going to be next. Back to you, Dennis. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the latest topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey, here is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent, Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Welcome, Dennis. Glad to have you back here with us. My early career started working for the American Red Cross, so I've always had an interest in emergency preparedness. In fact, most of my 17 years in hospitals were at level one trauma centers, including Tampa General Hospital, which also was a level one spine trauma and level one brain injury trauma center in the state of Florida. So I attended last week a webinar by Asper Tracy, which is the... um, HHS Emergency Preparedness Resource Center on what happened during the no-notice event in Las Vegas last October 1st, 2017. There are some good takeaways from this, and emergency preparedness is a condition of participation. I encourage everybody that is of a provider type that must comply with the rule that was effective uh, November 15th um, of last year that they, they get on board with this and listen to this webinar because you're going to hear a story about the Las Vegas shooting that simply wasn't in the paper. For example, Dr. Hirschman mentioned Googling. People that were at the scene of the incident, if they Googled trauma center, they got a different answer than if they asked Siri where the nearest trauma center was. So that was quite interesting in taking a look at that thing. Um, From the viewpoint of the five doctors who headed up some of the trauma responses that were on the call, Um, They noted that a no-notice event abruptly increased demand for surgical services and in order to call in staff that a technology solution was essential. They immediately sought an order from the governor to allow credential providers to exercise privileges at any and all hospitals that were responding. Um, And then some final thoughts from the webinar was the science of disaster predicts that only 10 to 20 percent of the injured require surgical services or critical care support which was borne out in this disaster. In Nevada, the EMS was required to transport gunshot wounds to trauma centers, which kind of um, clogged up the trauma centers a little bit. And they also spoke about redistributing self-delivered patients because it's a new concept. Um, So I encourage everybody that is preparing for emergency preparedness or updating it to please swing on over to Asper Tracy and listen to the recording. And now our Monitor Monday listener survey, our good friends at the American College of Physician Advisors are our sponsor once again this morning. And we are going to take a quick poll of our listeners regarding telehealth. Does your organization use telehealth? Click number one for yes, number two for no. 
Number three, if you're in the process of setting up telehealth. And of course, number four, if it's not applicable. Dennis will be back a little later in the program with the results of our poll. Thanks, Nancy. That was Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the President and CEO for Nancy Beckley and Associates. And as Nancy said, we'll have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in the broadcast. And coming up at nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you'll hear from David Glazer, Tim Powell, J. Paul Spencer, and Dale Vandemark. This is Monday on a snowy April 2nd. I'm Dennis Jones, substituting for Chuck Buck, and you are listening to Monitor Monday. Please stand by. Cardiac procedures yield high rates of reimbursement, and they're a target for auditing because that's where the money is, big money. Now, they're also a medical necessity target for rack auditing. Rack Monitor is conducting a webcast with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, so you won't leave money on the table or have your reimbursement recouped. Register now to attend Cardiac Procedures Part 2, ICDs, Watchman Devices, and Cardiac Stents. Join Dr. Hirsch as he reviews the approved indications, coverage determinations, and special requirements for ICDs, Watchman and Percutaneous Aortic, and Mitral Valve Procedures. The important webcast is this Wednesday, April 4th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. To register, click on the ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or call 800-252-1578, extension 2. Be sure to register now for this very, very hot webcast with Dr. Hirsch. You'll learn how to stay compliant while not leaving any money on the table when it comes to cardiac procedures. Now let's check in with healthcare attorney David Glazer, who's reporting on some risky business. Good morning, David. What is risky this morning? Good morning, Dennis. So today's risky business is about ligature risk, or more particularly, the risk that a hospital will be cited by the Joint Commission for failure to adequately protect patients against the risk of suicide by hanging. Note that I didn't mention CMS. I think that the Joint Commission is going beyond the instructions from CMS on this point. During a recent Joint Commission surveyor, the surveyor concluded that conditions in my client's ED posed an immediate danger to the health and safety of patients because there was inadequate protection from a suicidal patient hanging him or herself. Two things really bother me about this Joint Commission survey. First, several of the alleged dangers cited by the surveyor were not a real threat to anyone. For example, toilet plumbing was mentioned as a possible hanging risk. Now, perhaps a rodent could use plumbing in an effort to hang itself, but this is just not a realistic threat to human safety. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not making light of the ligature safety issues. Protecting patients should be paramount in any healthcare organization. However, I will freely mock enforcement actions that are utterly illogical. But that's only the first of my concerns. The second is perhaps more troubling. The surveyor cited as the basis of the action a CMS memo dated December 8th 2017, um, which Emily has conveniently put under the handout tab. Here is a key sentence from that memo. The focus of this memo does not apply to other healthcare settings, such as acute healthcare hospitals. The memo goes on to say, so, and, and just to be clear, it was focused primarily on psychiatric units. The memo goes on to say that psychiatric patients requiring medical care in non-psychiatric settings, medical inpatient units, DED, ICU, etc., must be protected when demonstrating suicidal ideation. The protection would be that of utilizing safety measures such as one-to-one monitoring. 
So the surveyor took a memo that says it doesn't apply to acute health care hospitals and applied it to an acute care hospital. Not only did they apply it, they used it to deny the hospital's accreditation. Just wow. So thus far, I've learned three important lessons from this episode. First, hospitals should be acutely aware of ligature risks. In the emergency department, in addition to considering whether physical remedies are easily implemented, providing one-to-one supervision for patients at high risk of suicide should lower risk as well as completely satisfy the government's direction on the matter. Second, some CMS memos continue to be imperfectly written and poorly understood. This memo is a shining example. It purports not to apply in acute care hospitals immediately before talking about the emergency department. That just isn't great drafting. The Joint Commission's enforcement action is downright baffling, but admittedly the CMS memo wasn't crystal clear. The third lesson is a disturbing one. If you're frustrated by a Joint Commission finding, your appeal process is incredibly limited. Considerable time will pass before you have the chance for any hearing, and once that chance arrives, while you may bring a lawyer, that lawyer is only permitted to address procedural issues and isn't allowed to speak about the substance. In the words of Oliver North's counsel, Brendan Sullivan, I am not a potted plant. The kangaroo court appeals process is merely one reason that hospitals may wish to carefully consider whether joint commission accreditation is a strategy they wish to pursue. Dennis, I hope all listeners will do the safety dance to protect patients, but I also hope that surveyors won't leave the real world far behind. Back to you. Okay, thanks, David. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Now, let's check in with J. Paul Spencer, who has an update on the latest Medicaid audits. Good morning, Paul. What's the latest? Well, good morning, Dennis, and good morning, everyone. Well, if you remember from last week, I was giving you an update on the ever-dwindling Medicaid RAC program nationwide. Uh, I uh, gave you many updates for uh, states that have either uh, asked for an exception or have, uh, you know, there was actually one who had a new contractor, and there were some that were uh, asking for exceptions uh, permanently based on the fact that they had uh, no uh, uh, Medicaid Medicaid, uh, RAC uh, contractors going for their business in that state. And there are a number of reasons, but the biggest reasons are pointed out by the four states that I'll update today. The state of Nebraska has now gone to a program called Heritage Health as of January 1st of 2017, uh, as well as a dental benefits manager for dental services on October 1st, 2017. This would be managed care programs. Uh, Basically, because uh, the Medicaid RAC contractor law excludes, again, uh, managed care services. Uh, there are so few services that are being paid in straight Medicaid uh, that they are asking for an exception, and that has been granted as of 11 or as of uh, December 14, 2017. In the state of Alabama, uh, they've also they've asked for a three-year exception to the Medicaid RAC program. Uh, they put out another request for proposals in mid 2017. 
and did not receive a single response. So for the next three years, beginning on December 19th of 2017, they will be uh, excluded from having a contractor under the Medicaid RAC program. The next two states are states that had uh, rather flourishing Medicaid RAC programs in the early part of the program, but have now shifted away and now asked for exceptions. The first state is the state of Ohio. Uh, at this point, uh, they indicated when they asked for an exception for Medicaid RAC rules that as of uh, July of 2017, uh, over 87% of Medicaid beneficiaries are now enrolled in a managed care plan, plan as well as long-term uh, services and supports. Uh, and they project that by June of this year, that number will increase to almost 87.5%. Uh, and subsequently, they are asking that they uh, be excluded from the Medicaid RAC program. That exclusion was granted on January 31st of 2018. The last state I wanted to update you all on is the state of Michigan. Now, Michigan had quite the uh, busy Medicaid RAC program, but their exception is a little bit different, and you need to listen to the wording because this is something that may be seen by uh, providers in the state of Michigan. Uh, now, because they have gone to, uh, it, again, uh, a managed care uh, majority population, they've asked for an exception uh, from, from the Medicaid RAC program. But when you look at their exception document, it's very important that uh, this language be pointed out. The state of Michigan has entered into a joint operating agreement with the CMS Unified Program Integrity Contractor, or UPIC, to conduct audits on Michigan Medicaid providers. Uh, and it was based on this that they asked for an exception to the Medicaid RAC rules. So while Medicaid RAC audits may be ending in the state of Michigan for the time being, uh, there are Medicaid UPIC audits that will be going forward for Michigan Medicaid providers. So it's uh, out of the frying pan and into the fire in the state of Michigan. And that is the complete update for Medicaid RAC programs nationwide. Uh, and with that, I'll throw it back to Dennis. There we go. Thanks, Paul. That was Monitor Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer, reporting on the latest Medicaid audits. Paul is a senior healthcare consultant with Doctors Management. Controversy continues to swirl around the 340B drug program, but is it all bad news? Here now with a field report on how one hospital is benefiting from 340B is Monitor Monday National Correspondent Tim Powell. I actually had some surprisingly good news. Uh, I was recently working in a large teaching hospital in Pennsylvania, and I was able to ask the system CFO if he was thinking of giving up on the 340B drug program in light of the cuts. I was surprised by his answer. He said despite the changes, they were getting over $10 million in benefit from staying in the program in the upcoming year. How could that be? For providers in the 340B drug program, the following instruction from CMS starting out the year looked like the end of the value in the program. Each separately payable non-pass-through 340B drug, uh, drug should be billed on a separate claim with the appropriate modifier and then paid at the drug payment rate of the ASP minus 22.5%. To see why there is still a benefit in being in the 340B drug program, you need to understand what is covered by the discount. Generally, the 340B program includes the following outpatient drugs, 
FDA-approved prescription drugs, over-the-counter OTC drugs written on prescription, biological products that can be dispensed only by prescription other than vaccines, or FDA-approved uh, insulin. Now, a quote from the HRSA website will give you an idea why he said what he did, and you can't see the bold and italics. I can only do that with my voice. Covered entities can purchase 340B drugs for all eligible patients, including patients with Medicare or private insurance, and generate revenue if the reimbursements for the drugs from payers exceed the discounted prices that they pay for the drugs. Because the 340B drug statute does not restrict how covered entities use the revenue, entities can use these funds to expand the number of patients served, increase the scope of services offered to low-income and other patients, invest in capital, cover administrative costs, or any other purposes. The HRSA does not have statutory authority to track on how covered entities use this revenue. Now, participating in the participating 340B providers will continue to reap the benefit of giving drugs purchased at a reduced cost under the program and may build managed care payers for these drugs. They will also benefit from the reduced cost when dispensing 340B drugs to self-pay patients. If the provider has a large amount of charity patients, this will continue to be a huge benefit to the provider. You may wonder why I didn't bring up Medicaid in my discussion. Well, the following is a quote from a report a CMS report state Medicaid policies and oversight activities related to the 340B drug purchasing program published by CMS in 2011 to tell you why. All state Medicaid agencies offer outpatient prescription drug coverage and reimburse retail pharmacies for covered outpatient drugs dispensed to Medicaid patients. Overall, the Medicaid program spent approximately $23 billion on prescription drugs in 2009 and Reading between the lines, what they're saying is Medicaid has its own discount program uh, that, that mirrors a 340B drug program, and there is an emphasis to prevent the double dipping of discounts for both the state and the federal government. This means the changes in the 340B drug program will have little or no impact on reimbursement of drugs to Medicaid patients. So in conclusion, don't look for the 340B drug program to disappear. Medicare just doesn't want to pay for their own discounted drugs. Considering recent events in the pharmaceutical industry, I wouldn't look for big changes coming from that side of the fence either. And with that, I pass it back to you, Dennis. Thank you for that insight, Tim. Uh, that was Monitor Monday National Correspondent Tim Powell. And you can read Tim's reporting on the 340B drug program in this Thursday's Rack Monitor. As we reported at the top of the broadcast, telemedicine has had significant changes. Reporting our lead story this morning is Washington attorney Dale Vandermark. Dale, what is the latest today on telemedicine? Well, thanks, Dennis, and thanks, everybody, for having me back. When I was last on the program about six months ago, I suggested that there seemed to be a growing consensus that poor Medicare reimbursement for telemedicine services one of the largest obstacles to the growth of telemedicine generally, uh, should be addressed. And at the time, each House of Congress had passed substantially the same bills expanding Medicare reimbursement for telemedicine, and Congress and federal agencies were continuing to call for further exploration of telemedicine options. Since then, a lot has happened, but the more things change, 
the more they stay the same. The favorable legislation the two houses of Congress passed became law this year, interestingly, um, as a part of the Bipartisan Budget Act passed in February. Make no mistake, this legislation represents a significant expansion in Medicare reimbursement for telemedicine. First, beginning in 2019, the geographic restrictions on telemedicine reimbursement, which have generally restricted telemedicine reimbursement in Medicare to rural areas, uh, will be lifted for telestroke programs. Second, beginning in 2020, Medicare Advantage plans will be allowed to offer certain telemedicine services as a part of their basic benefits, creating a stronger financial platform for MA plans to deploy telemedicine services as a part of their offering. Prior to November 2018, comments will be solicited from HHS to determine which telehealth services it will be appropriate to offer. Third, beginning in 2019, dialysis patients will be able to receive their monthly checkup via telemedicine visits. And as long as certain requirements are met, the provision of free telemedicine equipment to patients for this purpose will not constitute a CMP violation. And finally, in 2020, for certain ACOs, a patient's home will be considered an appropriate originating site for telemedicine services, and the rural geographic requirement will be eliminated. These are big changes and create a stronger financial base for the development of telemedicine services. Okay, so that's the change, but what's the same? Well, another big event occurred in March of 2018, just last month, the release of MedPAC's report on telehealth services and the Medicare program. The report was mandated by the 21st Century Cures Act and required MedPAC to report on Medicare fee-for-service telemedicine reimbursement, commercial payer telemedicine reimbursement, and the ways in which commercial payer policies on telemedicine may be incorporated into the Medicare program. The key findings in the report are that the commercial payer market, quote, is not uniform and insurers' rationale for implementing coverage consistently pertain to employer demands and competition rather than cost savings. And, in general, commercial plans have not found strong evidence that telehealth services reduce costs or improve outcomes. Needless to say, these are not good findings for telemedicine advocates, nor are they anything new. Indeed, these findings reflect the same concerns telemedicine advocates have been hearing for years. Nor is MedPAC's core recommendation surprising, which is to, quote, evaluate individual types of telehealth services for potential coverage under Medicare using the principles of cost, access, and quality. In other words, while Congress has recently improved the financial environment for telemedicine services, further reimbursement expansion will require proof of value in the context of cost, access, and quality. Telemedicine advocates should be very happy with the Bipartisan Budget Act, but they also need to recognize that further expansion will likely require a strong evidence base, and that is normal operating procedure for Medicare when it comes to telemedicine services. Dennis, back to you. Thanks, Dale. That was Dale Vandemark, a partner at the law firm of McDermott, Will, and Emery in Washington, D.C. Now's the time for the results of our Monitor Monday listener survey. And once again, here's Nancy Beckley. Thanks, Dennis. And once again, our poll results are brought to you by our good friends at the American College of Physician Advisors. 
And Dale, you might be interested in our survey here this morning of our Monitor Monday listeners. 59% have implemented telehealth at their organization. 20% have not. 8% are in the process of setting it up. And, of course, we have a number of non-institutional folks with us here this morning. 11% said it's not applicable to them. Back to you, Dennis. David, let's take a look at some of the questions we've been receiving. So we don't have very long, but Dale got one for you. Is it possible to use the incident to benefit when you're involved with telemedicine? You know, if the doctor isn't part of the call, could you still bill it under the doctor's name and number? Great question and one that has been subject to a lot of discussion uh, in a lot of professional agencies. Generally, the answer to the question is no, because the incident two requirements require the physician to be in the office itself. Now, some of the uh, intermediaries do have some very limited exceptions that may apply in the context of uh, some home health visits if the other requirements associated with telemedicine services are available. But as a general matter, and as a general matter with Incident 2 billing, you need to be very cautious, very careful, and make sure you get it right. Thank you so much, Dale. And Dennis, I think that's all we've got time for this morning. There are a couple of good ones. We'll try to catch them uh, by email or on our broadcast next week. You are so right, David. Um, That is going to be a wrap for us. Thank you so much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckley, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Tim Powell, J. Paul Spencer, and our special guest, Washington attorney, Dale Vandermark. We thank you for being with us this morning, and we look forward to your returning next Monday for another edition of Monitor Monday when Chuck Buck returns. Until then, I'm Dennis Jones, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.